0: The medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury, who lived between 1033 and 1109, wrote a significant book, a book entitled Cur Deus Homo, Why Did God Become Man? It was a seminal book, an important book, because for centuries, that is before Anselm, theologians even the early church fathers had argued that christ came into the world to pay a price a ransom to satan and so when he wrote this work he argued that christ came to restore god's honor and that was a major shift in how the coming of christ was understood in the early years. Of course, the Reformers would come along and they would modify Anselm's view of the coming of Christ and argue that Christ came not merely to restore the honor of God, but indeed to meet God's righteous requirements. In chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, the narrator, the writer, continues the theme regarding Christ's Superiority. All along in chapter 1, he has been arguing that Christ is greater and better. He is better than angels, and we saw that. But in chapter 2, and particularly from verse 5 to the end of the chapter, he turns his attention to the humanity of Jesus. Because all along he has argued that Christ is greater and better than angels. But there is a question that is left unanswered. And that question simply is, what do we do with the human Jesus who suffered and died? How is it, if he is greater than angels, that he could come into the world as a human being, lower than angels, suffered such a terrible death? And that is what he's going to answer then in our passage here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. Already in verses 5 to 9, the writer has been addressing the humanity of Jesus. And he has been arguing there that Christ came to fulfill human destiny. He quoted in verses 6 to 8 from Psalm 8. Verses 4 and 6. And he quoted from this psalm. Showing that God has made man. A little lower than the angels. But had crowned him with glory and honor. And had placed all things under the feet of men. But nevertheless. We do not rule over the creation as we ought. Because of sin. And so he tells us that Christ has come. Made a, a little lower than the angel. For a while. And he has been crowned with glory and honor, but he also came to suffer death and to taste death for everyone. And so what Christ has done, he has come as our representative so that in him we might have our destiny fulfilled. We were intended to rule, but Christ has come, he has died, and he has been crowned with glory and honor, and our destiny is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But what he will do then in verses 10 to 18 is to explore other reasons for Christ coming into the world. And this is what I want to pick up with you this morning, the reasons why Christ came as man. The first reason that he gives, that is in verses 10 to 13, is that the Son of God became man in order to lead many sons to glory. If you read in verse 10, Hebrews 2 verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom were all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. There in the midst of this sentence is the reason that Christ came. He came... To bring many sons to glory the presence of the explanatory four in verse 10 suggests that what he will explain in verse 10 is related to what he has said in verse 9 that is the son of God was made a little lower than angels for the suffering of death he was crowned with glory and honor when he was raised from the dead and he did so by the grace of God at his coming to the world that he might taste death for everyone. And he says it is fitting, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You will note that then the purpose, the eternal purpose of God for his people, was that he should lead many sons to glory. It is interesting that the term glory, as it appears in the book of Hebrews, is bound up with Christ and the eschatological Christ. In chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus Christ is described as the brightness of the Father's glory. In chapter 2, verse 9, we read that he is crowned with glory and honor. Doxa. In chapter 3, verse 3, he deserves more glory than Moses. And in chapter 13, as he concludes this epistle, the writer prays that his readers, that God may cause his readers to be complete in every good work, to do his will, working in them what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So for the writer of Hebrews, glory, that splendor, is connected to the person of Christ. And so when he says, therefore, that God's intent is to lead many sons to glory, we must not see this merely abstractly, but glory is related to Christ, that is the majestic Christ, the beaming Christ, the Christ who is highly exalted. That is the goal of God, and Christ came in order to lead many sons to glory. That was God's eternal plan. Now, the author states that it was appropriate for it was fitting, that is, appropriate or proper, for God to make the captain of the salvation of his people perfect through suffering. Notice that the verse, verse 10, characterizes God As the goal and source of all things, for it was fitting, it was proper, it was appropriate for him, that is for God. For whom are all things? All things belong to God. The goal of all things is God. And by whom are all things? That is, all things come from God, so he is the goal and the source of all things. All things originate from him and all things terminate in him. Now this sovereign God considered it proper and fitting that his people should enter into glory by one way and one way alone. And that one way is by perfecting the captain of salvation through suffering. What he's doing then in verse 10 is striking a blow at first at the very heart of any lingering question as to why Christ came and any question regarding the appropriateness of Christ's coming. He said it is fitting, it was fitting for God to bring many sons to glory by perfecting the captain of salvation. And so what he's saying is, it is God who considered it to be right and proper to send Christ into the world. And if anyone has an argument with why Christ came, then none is greater than God morally, and therefore none can question God's decision in sending his son. You'd also note that in verse 10, he describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the captain of salvation, the archegos. It's a difficult word to apply because the semantic range is, is wide. It is a term that could mean originator, and it could also mean pioneer. And I think that these two terms then are perhaps best to describe what is stated here about the Lord. He's called the captain of salvation. He is the originator, the source of our salvation. But he's also the pioneer, the trailblazer, the one who goes out ahead of us to secure salvation for his people. He also describes our Lord Jesus Christ as one who is perfected through suffering. And this language of perfection through suffering has attracted and continues to attract scholarly debate. What does it mean that Christ is perfected through suffering? That in order for God to lead his sons to glory, the captain of salvation, who is Jesus Christ, had to be perfected through suffering. It is of note, I think, that the writer of Hebrews mentions the perfection or the perfecting of Christ on three occasions. Here in chapter 2 verse 10, but also later In chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 there the text says though he was a son yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and having been perfected he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him and the third reference to the perfecting of Christ is in Hebrews 7 and verse 28 for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness But the word of, of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So we have a difficulty in understanding what it means by the perfecting of Christ. If God only leads Son to glory by perfecting Christ through suffering, in what sense did suffering perfect the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me say that the way through this difficulty is first of all to recognize that the writer does not mean that Christ was perfected in a moral sense. That is clear because elsewhere the pastor who writes this letter to this group of believers categorically affirms that Christ in his nature was sinless. One only has to skip to the chapter 4, verse 15, where he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. There is a clear affirmation that Christ knew no sin, that he committed no sin. And then perhaps the better known text in Hebrews 7, 26, we read that For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. So, if we think of the perfecting of Christ, we must rule out the notion that he was perfected in a moral sense because he's always been morally perfect and upright. If we are to understand what then it means that suffering perfected Christ, we need to look at the language, and particularly as it is used in the Old Testament. Because this term that is used here, perfect, teleos, occurs in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And it is interesting that this term perfect occurs in the context of priest. Being consecrated or qualified for office. You will find that, for instance, in Exodus 29 and verse 22 and verse 33, Leviticus 7 verse 37, and Leviticus 8 verse 22. In these contexts, the term is used to refer to those priests who are consecrated or qualified for office. And I believe that because of the nature of Christ's work, There is a similarity between him and Old Testament priest. And thus when the term perfect is used of Christ, it is used particularly to mean that our Lord Jesus Christ was qualified through suffering to be our Savior. God's intent was to lead us ultimately to glory, into the very presence of the glorious Christ. But the way he leads us to glory is by perfecting or by qualifying Christ to be our Savior. And he qualified him to be Savior by putting him through suffering. It means that it is in suffering that Jesus proved himself qualified to be our Savior. By bearing suffering and bearing it faithfully. That he has been proven for all times to indeed be our Savior. And we notice that his entire life was one of suffering. He suffered on earth, suffered in the daily transactions of life. We saw his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw it on the Roman cross, where he proved his qualification to be our Savior by his obedience. And therefore, because he was obedient in suffering, he was qualified to be the captain of our salvation. In verse 11 of our passage here in Hebrews 2, not only tells us that God leads us to glory by qualifying Christ, perfecting him through suffering, but that Christ shared in our humanity. For, why was Christ born into this world and born lower than angels and suffered for both he who sanctifies that it is Christ who sets apart and those who are being sanctified that those who are being set apart are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren and what he's arguing is that Christ not only had to come to lead us to glory but he had to come to be identified with us that he who sanctifies He who sets people apart for God and those who are set apart must also share the same human nature. He tells us that Christ was not ashamed to call them brethren, He was not ashamed to identify with us and call us brothers and sisters. And what he does in verses 12 and 13 where he quotes Old Testament text, he says, in fact, the Old Testament speaks and teaches us that Christ was destined to identify with us even from days of old. And he quotes in verse 12, Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. Because in Psalm 22, the very opening words are the words which Jesus uttered on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Psalm 22, the psalmist says, He's surrounded by strong bulls of Bashan. Dogs have surrounded him. They gape at him. It is a psalm that refers to Christ's death on the cross. And yet in the midst of this bleak psalm, the psalmist says that I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of assembly I will sing praise to you. With a note of triumph, he will be a witness to God even though he suffers and is crucified. And this is a reference to Christ. Again, the writer of Hebrews quotes another Old Testament text that teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ had to identify with his people. He he quotes next in verse 13 from Isaiah chapter 8. Where, of course, it's a passage that deals with the judgment of God upon the enemies of Israel. And there the Messiah speaks, I will put my trust in him. And then in verse 18 of that text, here am I and the children whom you have given me. Here in the Old Testament, Christ is identifying himself with his people. He's calling them brethren or brothers and sisters. He's calling them children. He's identifying with them. And so the first reason from our passage, verses 10 to 13, Why Christ came? He came to lead many sons, everyone for whom he died. And so you see now, in verse 9, Christ tasted death for everyone, but in verse 10, everyone is limited to the many sons whom God leads to glory. So Christ came first and foremost to lead many sons to glory. And in order to do that, our Lord Jesus Christ had to prove his qualification to be our Savior, Through suffering. But in verse 14 and 15, we have a second reason why Christ came. Not only to lead many sons to glory, but secondly, to liberate us from the devil and the fear of death. So let us take a look then at verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then, as the children, and you notice the hook word children... In verse 13, here am I and the children whom God has given me. But in verse 14, he picks up on in that inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. And what he's doing in verse 14, again, he's reiterating that Jesus Christ was fully human. That he partook of flesh and blood. That he was a real man. That just like the children of God are human, the Son of God shared the same flesh and blood and became human. Now, we must pause here to, to, to clarify that even though the writer states that Christ shared our humanity, we are not then to deduce from this that, there, that all distinctions between Christ and us have been erased. Christ is still the Son of God, even though he was human. And more than that, he was a sinless human being. Something that none of us can say with a straight face of ourselves. But now he tells us the Son of God has come. He has partaken of flesh and blood just as the children of God have. He has likewise shared in the same. And then we see the second reason for his coming. And that second reason is introduced in that, that clause, that through death, he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. So the second major reason for Christ to come is to not only lead us to glory, but to liberate us, and to liberate us from the devil who had the power of death. Now you would note that for the writer of Hebrews, evil must not be seen as an abstract principle, but as personal, as a personal and intractable enemy of the people of God. He is the devil, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. And in that regard, the writer of Hebrews would agree with Paul because the devil, according to Paul, is the prince of the power of the air, the one who works in the sons of disobedience. Now the writer states that the devil possessed the power of death. That through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now the question is, how on earth does the devil have the power of death? May I say to you that no creature of God, no angelic being, no demons, and certainly no human being has intrinsic power. All power that we have is derived of God, is given to us. And so Satan's power over death, and therefore over us, is a derived power. It is given secondarily by God. Now how did he gain power over death? We have to relate then the story of Genesis in chapter 3. Because God had made it very plain to Adam that in the day you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And Adam sinned in the garden by eating of the tree, by disobeying God. And God pronounced a curse, not only upon Satan or upon the serpent, not only upon creation, but a curse upon humanity. And the curse is death. The wages of sin is death. You need to understand that the curse that was pronounced upon mankind was not merely physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God, eternally. And even when you read in Genesis chapter 4, you do not see the march of death. But the moment Adam and Eve, they began to die. And in chapter 5 of Genesis, death blossoms. And there is this unrelenting Statement, this man lived so many years, he had so many children, and he died. This man lived so many years and had so many children, and he died. Death marches through the human race. And only one man in Genesis 5, Enoch, when he was 65 years old, he walked with God. And Enoch was not because God had taken him. Death prevailed because of sin. Not only physical, but spiritual death. Now Satan gained power and the power of death because of death's relation to sin. You see, death is a curse God pronounced upon man because of sin. Satan is the one... Who entices man to sin And not only entices him to sin But enslaves him in sin And because sin leads to death And because Satan entices and entangles man into sin He therefore, in a secondary sense, has the power of death Because he holds us in sin And therefore, he brings death Now he says that Christ has come To nullify, to destroy to take away Satan's power, to hold us in death. And how does Christ do that? He deals with our sins. Because when he took on our humanity, when he offered himself on the cross for our sins, when he paid the complete price on the cross for our sins, he secured forgiveness of sins. He secured peace with God and eternal life. And because Christ's death forgave our sins, we have been delivered not from mere physical death, but from spiritual and eternal death. So Christ, by his death, delivered us from death. doesn't mean that Christians will not die physically, but what it does mean is that death will not hold us forever. That we will be able to say, Oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? You see, because of Christ, we have been delivered from that permanent and eternal death, which is hell itself. So Christ came to liberate us from the power of Satan, the one who had the power of death. Not only did he come to liberate us from the power of Satan, he came to liberate us from the fear of death. And so verse 15 of our passage says, And release those who through the fear of death... We were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. All their lifetimes subject to bondage. We were in subjection to the fear of death. You need to note that it is Christ's death that delivers us from Satan, it is Christ's death that delivers us from the fear of death. The reality is that as men and women, we fear death, it's a reality. This past week, I had the occasion to visit a funeral home. I must confess, I do not like that visit. And if I visited once, I think I visited it too often. It's a place of mourning and sorrow and heartbreak. We were led by the attendant of the funeral home into a little room where there were many caskets or coffins. Some of them were big and others were small. Some of them were shiny with varnish, others were sort of plain. And the family members of the deceased who were with me were visibly upset because they had come very close with death itself. The very presence of the coffins is a reminder of our mortality their mortality, and they could not get out of the room quick enough, or quickly enough. We are afraid of death. Every now and then, then the thought of death intrudes itself presumptuously in in our minds. And when we think of our own mortality, that one day we will also be in a coffin. We subdue those thoughts and we move quickly. Because you see, death is that ultimate disjunction. It's an abrupt end. The world fears death. But Christ has come to free us from the fear of death. You see, for the believer, death is not that which leads to condemnation, but it leads to communion with God. That is why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You see, for the believer, because Christ has died for our sins, death no longer has its sting. Death leads us into the very presence of Christ. At the moment we close our eyes on earth, we stand in the presence of our God. Christ came to lead us to glory. He came to liberate us from the power of Satan and from the fear of death. The writer tells us in verse 16 that Christ having come, did not come to give aid to angels, that is to lay hold of angels. But he came to give aid, to lay hold of us, and to lead us, and to liberate us from the power of Satan, and to liberate us from the fear of death. But there's a third reason, and the climactic reason why Christ came. This is found in verses 17 and 18 of our passage. Therefore... In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. He draws an inference from the preceding statement, and he reiterates that Christ identified with us in every respect. Therefore, in all things or in every respect, he had to be made like his brethren, like us. That is, of course, without sin. And so the question then, why was it necessary for Christ to come and to be like us in flesh? And now you see the third reason, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Christ has come to lend us aid as a merciful and faithful high priest. The author, for the first time, although he alludes to this in chapter 1, verse 3, but for the first time he mentions the high priesthood of Christ. There are 17 occurrences in the book of Hebrews to the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage here, verses 17 and 18, anticipates the larger discussion that will take place in the following chapters on the high priesthood of Christ. But he tells us that Christ has come and shared our humanity so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest in Israel was the second most important position in the nation, second only to being that of king. The two top leaders in Israel were the king and the high priest. And the high priest was different from the Nabi, the prophet. Because the prophet's job was to take revelation from God to the people. But the priest went the opposite direction. He took the people's sin and their concern to God. And what the priest was required to do, included three things. First of all, his task included representation. He was the representative of the people of God. His task included intercession, praying for the people of God. And third, his task included that of satisfaction, offering up sacrifices for the sins of the people. That was the role of a priest. Now Christ has come, as that mediator between us and God the one to represent us to God the one who would intercede for us before God and the one to make satisfaction for our sins the writer says that he came to be a merciful high priest and in chapter 5 of Hebrews 1 to 5 he will take up the notion of the merciful intercession of the high priest one of the qualifications Of the high priest in Israel was that he had to be an Israelite he had to come from his own people he was flesh and blood sharing the weaknesses of his own people and the reason that he had to be taken from his own people sharing their weaknesses was that when he went to pray for them he had to do so with feeling because he himself shared their weaknesses and shared their suffering. He was therefore able, by his own human nature, to represent them with compassion and with mercy. And the writer of Hebrews says, Christ therefore came to become our high priest. He took flesh. He took our suffering, the suffering of humanity, that he might be able to offer to God, on our behalf, an intercession with feelings. With compassion and with mercy. He came also as man, not only to be a faithful high priest, but to be, or to be a merciful high priest, but to be a faithful high priest. That he might render to God all that he demanded of his people. That he might endure testing on behalf of his people without faltering. Now, why did he become our high priest? Why did he take flesh to become our high priest? The text goes on to tell us that he became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and here is the purpose of his coming as high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you want to understand why Christ came yes, it is to lead us to glory. It is to liberate us from our enemies. But you need to know that our great Our greatest danger was not Satan. Our greatest danger was God himself. That salvation is always a deliverance from the wrath of God. It does not matter if the world is arrayed against us or Satan is arrayed against us. If God is on our side. But it really doesn't matter if the world is on our side and all spiritual powers are on our side and God is against us. The danger man has always been in from the fall in Genesis 3 is the anger or the wrath of God. And here then is the reason Christ came. He came to be our priest, to propitiate God. This is a big word in our text. But it simply means to appease in verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Our Lord Jesus Christ took flesh so that he might die on the cross for our sins, that he might remove the the wrath of God. We have to understand the cross in these terms. It is Jesus Christ on the cross who attracted the wrath and the anger of God upon himself so that we may go free. If you want to understand why Christ came, He came to lead us to glory. He came to liberate us from Satan. But he came to lend us aid as our high priest to attract God's wrath upon himself that we might be delivered from the wrath of God. And this then means that Christ's act on the cross was first God's word. He was doing it on God's account. He was a priest pertaining to the things of God. And then he did it because of love for us. And this work, of removing God's wrath by dying for our sins is unique and unrepeatable in its character. That's why Christ came. He took God's wrath. He removed it by absorbing it all in himself. That those of us who are in Christ are forever free from the wrath of God. And we may be able to say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 18 concludes the chapter with the practical relevance of Christ's high priesthood. He came as a priest. He came as a human being. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Christ came as our merciful and faithful high priest. He bore us the suffering and temptation of life. He was tempted in all circumstances. We saw that after the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, how he was tempted to turn stone into bread, to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. We saw Satan at the cross saying to him, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He was tempted and his suffering was a form of temptation, but he endured. And because Jesus Christ came as a human being, He suffered and endured temptation. Those of us who suffer and are tempted must know that we have in Christ one who is able to help us. I remember very early in my pastorate, years ago, a lady called me in my study and she said, I want to talk to a counselor, a Christian counselor. And then she said to me, well, have you ever been divorced? And I said, no. She said, well, you can't help me. I need a pastor who has been divorced. I thought that perhaps if I'm not divorced, I may be able to tell her how not to get divorced. Our Lord Jesus Christ suffered temptation and did not fail in temptation. Therefore, he is the best place to help us. We don't need somebody who has failed the test to tell us how to, to win and to overcome. We need one who has been tested and gone through without failing. And that's what Christ did. And because he was tested, and because he did not fail, he's able to help us in our temptations that we may not fail. We regularly receive invitations to functions, to hear some renowned investor, somebody who has made it big, by following a particular formula in investment. We are invited often by telemarketers to claim some prize we have won. Some weekend at a resort in Collingwood or somewhere like that. Or go on a free cruise to Alaska or some exotic destination. And for the most part, we routinely decline these overtures. Because we perceive that those who make them do not have our best interests at heart. We believe that they are ultimately out to get us. They want to trap us. In some deal. You and I need to know that God has our best interest at heart. That God's eternal purpose for us as his people is that we should inherit glory. God's goal is to lead us to glory. That after this life, that we should enter into the presence, the intimate presence of the glorious Christ forever. And he has sent into this world the captain of our salvation, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was tested in suffering and qualified through suffering. And he's leading us on to glory. Now you need to know that the road to glory is a road strewn with thorns and thistles. This path that he leads us on to glory is a difficult road. It's a hard climb. There are many obstacles and there are many dangers along the road but it leads onward and upward and you you, you need to be part of this pilgrimage to glory because even though we do not now see him we have the confidence that one day he will come in glory and we shall see him as he is. Oh my dear beloved friends You need to know that this is not the termination of your journey; it's only the beginning. That after this, we shall be with Him forever. God's purpose is that you will inherit glory, and we do not yet know what it will be like. But I want to suggest to you, it is beyond anything that you and I can ever imagine. And so we say, "Maranatha, O Lord Jesus." Come, and come quickly. Secondly, you must take courage, because you have the champion that you need. People are always seeking a champion. Centuries before Christ came, the Greek states sought a champion to restore their glory and their fortune. And they found Philip of Macedonia, And ultimately they found his son, Alexander the Great, the true champion of the Greeks. We we are still seeking champions centuries after Alexander the Great. We want a champion forward to lead the Maple Leafs to success. We want a champion on our basketball team to lead us to the NBA title. We want a champion in politics who would uphold our values. We want a champion in the field of science who'll be able to find a cure once and for all for cancer. But we have a champion in Jesus. A champion who is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of battle. A champion who in the Old Testament went out before the people of God to fight for them. We have a champion in Jesus Christ who has gone into the battle against Satan. And when he came forth, he was very much like insignificant David standing before Goliath. It seemed that Christ was no match for Satan and his minions. And when he was crucified on the cross, the cross, visibly for those who looked on, was a sign of failure. It seemed that our champion had lost the battle. But just there, when, when the world rejoiced, and when Satan rejoiced, the death of Christ was victory. It is there that he, by his death, defeated Satan and death. And no wonder John Donne is correct, death thou shalt die. You see, Christ is a true champion. And those of us who are in him will overcome. I have overcome the world, he says. It means, therefore, that you will overcome. In fact, Paul says it in exalted language. He says, we are more than conquerors through Christ. You see, we have a champion who has defeated Satan, and he will, in fact, cause us to defeat him. You also need to know that in Jesus Christ, you have a faithful and a merciful high priest. We as believers, we dwell on the divinity of Jesus. We think of Christ who is God, and that is right. But you also need to see Christ as man, perfect man. You see, Christ must be received as our king, but also as our king. K-I-N our relative when we come to Christ we must come to him not only as our great king but we must come to him as our family that even now in heaven our savior wears the same flesh and blood just like you and me perfected glorified but still flesh and blood when you come to Christ you must know that he sees you as a child of his as a brother and a sister Somebody with whom he identifies. When you pray to him, you pray to him as your savior, but you pray to him as your relative, as your family. And this one to whom we pray lived this life, endured the suffering that we have endured, and therefore because he endured and overcame, He's able to understand us and to help us. Come to a Christ who knows you more than you know yourself and who sympathizes and empathizes with you in your suffering. He knows you because he's man. May God bless you. Jesus Christ came to lead you to glory, came to liberate you from Satan and the fear of death. He came to lend us aid as our high priest, our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God for Jesus' sake.